It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Alrighty, Ben Price here, Thunder Down Under, part of Daily Thunder, looking at evangelism truths from heroes of the faith. And I hope you guys are well. I've been enjoying this. I've been loving uh, digging into some of these old heroes of the faith because, uh, well, as someone that does impersonations and impersonating these characters, you, you want to learn all about them and all their traits and characteristics, etc. So to be able to do this on a deeper level and to find out how we can not just go, well, I know a lot about them, but this is going to help me when I go out and share the gospel. So I hope it's helping you guys as well. So we're up to the last one. Can you believe it? Now, last week was a, I mentioned a really special one doing Keith Green. That was someone who had a profound impact. And, and this guy definitely has had a huge impact on me as an evangelist. And you have to include this guy. I mean, look, it's hard to say who do we include, but uh, th- the reason I've got this guy is because yes, he's someone that's an evangelist. Uh, he has a voice. They all had voices, you know that. But it's a voice that we can actually listen to. There's a whole bunch of others. In fact, I think I could probably do another whole series on this. But for now, we're looking at William Booth. Now, William Booth was born like, well, they were all born. But back in 1829, died in 1912. And so he was from England as well. Another Brit. And he was at the beginning of his Ministry. He was a, an English Methodist preacher who went on to become the first general and the founder of the Salvation Army, along with his wife Catherine Booth. And so we probably know him most for that. Um, but to tell you about his life, as a young boy, he he went along to church. A lot of these heroes did have that upbringing where they went to church, but it wasn't really, you know, a huge integral part of his life. It was just there on a Sunday. It was St Stephen's Parish church in Nottingham and he found it rather boring and at the age of about 13 he was old enough to then go out and work and help support the family it happened a lot I I know that's a similar story to D.L. Moody and others who had that poor upbringing had to go and work and he he found work at a pawnbroker's shop where he's able to uh, sell secondhand goods and uh, when he was about 15, he had a friend from school who took him to a church service in Broad Street, and he found there the services were a lot more lively, and the preachers would preach with passion, and they were articulate in their sermons, and uh, the audience would often shout, Amen! Amen! And this was a lot more lively, and the prayers were not so much out of the prayer books, but they were prayers that were from the heart, and they were... Uh, from among the congregation and sometimes William would even rehearse practicing sermons and not that he was that good but he he just found that I like to do this and not that even really at that stage understood the gospel he'd uh, been going along to this church for two years and hadn't yet come to Christ can you believe that and upon hearing that we could die at any time William wondered where would he go and so he came to Christ he knelt down in the room below the church and he was saying what would he have sounded like then as a young 15 year old i i wanted to be right with god and i wanted to make others right for god now i don't know if that's how he sounded now we do have his voice right so we do have it on youtube there is the uh, final speech when he was an old man william booth you have that final speech 
that we can actually listen to. But I want to read a whole bunch of his quotes in his voice. And so here's some quotes from William Booth. Will you go down to his feet and place yourself entirely at his disposal? God loves you with a great love, the man whose heart is bursting with a passion for the impossible. Go straight for souls and go for the worst. Can we go too fast in saving souls? If anyone still wants a reply, let him ask the lost souls in hell. Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. If I had my choice, I wouldn't send you to school. I'd send you to hell for five minutes, and you'd come back real soul winners. Can you believe that quote there? If I had my choice, I wouldn't send you to school. I'd send you to hell for five minutes, and you'd come back real soul winners. You don't hear that sort of uh, quote these days mentioned a lot, but it's true. You would never, ever um, depart from the faith because if you saw that, and I think it's a really good thing to uh, be able to note that he had hell preaching. Um, He definitely spoke about the grace and the mercy, but there was that uh, in his preaching. And so when he he realized that he was a follower of Christ, that he wanted to uh, be a preacher and he had that knack of being able to preach, He trained himself in speech and writing, and he became a uh, lay preacher in the Methodist church. And he knew that he was being called to ministry. And so one of the first things he did was open-air evangelism. And we've seen that with Charles Spurgeon, A.W. Tozer, um, D.L. Moody. They all did open-air preaching, and I've talked about that. And I would love to see a return to that. I think maybe there's pastors listening going, no, no, I don't want to go to that. But we need it. We need people out there to hear the gospel. And it was so needed. And uh, William Booth had a friend, Bill Sampson. I wonder if he was strong. But uh, he encouraged him to make a difference by preaching to the poorest parts of the community. And at that stage, they uh, they called themselves the mission. And William had seen the worst drunk in the slums of England. Can you imagine having that as your label, as your title? I'm not the worst drunk But uh, he brought him to Christ. And that was uh, one of the things that William did was he'd find the worst sinner in that town and bring them to Christ because it would have a big impact. I remember hearing Ray Comfort say that um, he would bring, well, he would pray for, I guess, the top 10 atheists every single day because, uh, I mean, there's so many, but praying for them, they would have a big impact. And, And it's something about that that's really impacting. If we can get that one who's going to have a big influence. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a good tactic, I think, to have. And so he would go after that worst drunk and it aroused the curiosity of the people because they were wanting to hear him preach. And many of the poor, uh, William would give a Bible and he would tell them to attend church. However, uh, they said, you know, oh, we're not going to be accepted. You know, that's probably how they talked in the east end of uh, London or, you know, different parts of England where he was from. He's like, you know, um, they're not going to accept us. We don't have our Sunday bests. You know, we've got our dirty, smelly clothes, right? Not I mean, probably spoke like that. But William said, well, if Christ can accept you, then the church ought to. Well, this, this was when he was much younger, so he might not have had a gravelly 
well, we see if we put away, you know, that Christ can accept you as well. And so uh, he brought them into the, the Broad Street Chapel. Can you imagine uh, seeing this unfold? The, the church is filled, the doors fling open, and everyone looks around, and suddenly there's this look of shock, horror on people's face as these unlikely uh, poor people walk into this church and then there was women that were getting handkerchiefs out, covering their nose, going, oh, that ghastly smell. Was that you? No, 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 it's the people up the back. Oh, have a look at them. You can imagine, right? And they've sat down in the church, and there's this awkward silence, and every eye is glaring angrily at William. And after the service, the reverend wanted to see William along with all the elders, and you, you can imagine that in some sort of movie where he's like, ah, well, William... I know you do a good work with all those poor people out there, and I, I commend you for that. That's good. Yes, yes. The poor people, they do need Christ as well. We want to see them come to Christ, but, you know, it's a little inappropriate to bring in such riffraff from the streets. I mean, you know, you know, old boy. I mean, and William just didn't want to hear that. But, uh, hey, in the scriptures, it's so clear. James talks about this, and uh, you, you may know this, but it's worth reading, hearing it, in this context, James 2, I'm going to read from verse uh, 1 to two, one to 4 and then from 8 to 9, it says, My brothers, show no partiality, which is a bias, a prejudice, or being one-sided, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit down at my feet. This is the amplified dramatic version. <laughs> Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then in verse 9, it goes down to say, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, we might today not show partiality in that sense. We'd be welcoming people in. It, it, even though it's hard sometimes if there's a, a you know smell that comes with it a fragrance that we're not used to, that stings when we inhale. That could be so. Uh, but there is partiality still in amongst us as well. It may not be rich and poor. It could be talented or not so talented. It could be the people that just are hard to get along with. And we know that. And we could be one. I could be one. We could be partial to whether they're rich or poor or famous or not or jabbed or not. Hey, there's all kinds of prejudice that could go on and we ought to be non-partial to anyone because all we want to see come to Christ. And uh, so these unlikely lads, these poor, they didn't feel welcome, uh, even though they sort of came to an agreement. You know, they can sit up the back, you know, behind the curtain it's like they're not going to feel welcome and nor should they with that sort of uh, welcome to the church. It's, it's a little different now. But William wondered, is there some way to help the poor? This, this is back then. There was no real uh, service that was offering that. And the people would often um, be hanging around this pawn shop where he worked. They were the most poor, destitute, uh, needy people. And William had compassion. What can we do for these people? He ended up uh, losing his jobs. It was a very tough time at that stage. And 
He was attending church, was preaching on the streets, uh, also studying the great evangelist Charles Finney. Very similar to Keith Green in the last one. He studied Charles Finney and they were very similar in their passion to see souls. So probably another hero for another uh, another series. But uh, So William moved to London to go for work when he was 20 years old and he wanted to earn money, but this time not as a pawnbroker. He, he wanted to move past that because it, it came with a lot of... Um, well, it came with that clientele where uh, they were just selling the goods back and then they'd go and use them and then they'd sell them back in it. He wanted something different and he started street preaching, um, attending a church as a Methodist lay preacher and he wanted to become a full-time preacher and help the poor. And he had a greater interest in helping the poor than the knowledge. You know, he you need both, right? You need to have knowledge to preach, but he had a greater passion to see the poor come to Christ. And I think that's great because you don't want to just have all this knowledge and no real action that goes with it. And William was a man of action to get in there among them and um, not overly well-read, but but definitely was starting to learn more from Charles Finney and starting to read more. And um, he wasn't able to get a full-time position at that particular time as a Methodist preacher. There was a, a man called Edward Rabbits. Doesn't that sound like someone from Wind in the Willows or, or Winnie the Pooh? Edward Rabbits. Hello, old boy. I'm Edward Rabbits. <laughs> yes, just bounced in here. And uh, he'd made his uh, fortune from boot factories. Uh, boots, like what you wear on your feet. Uh, we, we call uh, the trunk of our car in Australia the boot. Pop the boot open. Chuck the chuck those uh, chuck the esky in the boot, which the esky is like a cooler uh, to put uh, food in or whatever. And anyway, but boots, yeah, he had boot factories, and um, he he'd seen a young William Booth preach, and he was very impressed. And he said that you know you should you should be full time, old boy. And William knew uh, that that's what he wanted to do, but he also needed money and he needed to work. And the man said, you know, well, I mean, how much would you need a week or, you know? And he said, well, uh, I could probably, you know, get by on 12 shillings a week. And he went, oh, I, I'll give you 20 shillings a week to live off for three months. We'll get you started. And he immediately became a full-time preacher just like that. Almost like the disciples when they immediately left their nets and followed him, as it says in Matthew 4.20. And Edward Rabbits, just what a, what a cool name, just to be able to say, I'm Edward Rabbits. Oh, right. Uh, he introduced William to Catherine Mumford. The two had already met, but this was a reintroduction, almost like he was matchmaking them. And uh, he felt, this is William, when he met Catherine uh, that he was not that well dressed. He was his clothes were sort of patched together, and but she'd overlooked that, and he was very impressed with her, and not too long decided this is the wife that I'd like to marry, and uh, she encouraged William to study more because she was very studious. She um, had severe curvature of the spine growing up, and uh, was quite bedridden, and she read. The scriptures, she read so many books and so she encouraged William to do the studying more and um, she was a very strong woman in the Lord and um, they were really complementary to one another and you see that uh, in the book and, and and that's one of the books there, the um, 
William Booth and his Salvation Army. So I, I reread that one, uh, which was great. Recommend it. And uh, there's there's a couple others online that I was able to draw from, which is great. There's there's a lot uh, about William and a lot about Catherine, but we're we're looking at William, and uh, so William had this reputation as this passionate preacher. Uh, yes, he was starting to learn more, but he, he had that passion that was in him. And uh, it wasn't too long before they got married, they moved in with uh, Catherine's parents in Brixton, and. William was out saving uh, new converts would come to Christ and they would uh, get a Bible and they would get a follow-up, which at that time was revolutionary. Now, we know it. It's a great thing to follow people up with prayer and the scriptures and to to meet with them, to disciple them. But this was something revolutionary to give them a Bible and a follow-up at that time. And and William was uh, looking out. You can imagine how it just, when you when you think of, England in those days, in the late 1800s, it's like it's grey, it's it's dreary, it's dark. It, there's not a lot of colour that seems to be in my mind. And you know, he he's looking out and he's like, "How many of those grey, dreary homes know Jesus?" It's an interesting thought when you look out. I've I've done that sometimes. I've looked out and you see thousands of people. You think, how many of these people know Christ? And Catherine was also a preacher. She she spoke uh, and shared a lot, which was uh, kind of revolutionary at the time as well. Because as an evangelist, you know, men and women can be an evangelist, but it was unusual for her to speak. And she was being um, you know used by churches to speak and share the gospel. Uh, she said, even if she looks like a fool, she'll be a fool for Christ. Now, they ended up moving to Cornwall and they had, uh, well, they had six children and one on the way. And it was there that they, uh, William started going to tent meetings. They had this uh, circus tent they'd hired in London. And it was an eight mile walk uh, from where William Booth and Catherine were living at that particular time. They'd moved uh, again to, but there was still about eight miles. That's a long walk. Uh, if you're coming home, it's probably about two and a half hours, depending on the pace of your walk. And and you get the impression that he was kind of strolling back this night, just taking his time because he, he looked out and he, he saw the poor, he saw the needy, he saw the pubs that were overflowing with drunk people. And there was this real need. This this was the East End of London, right? It's, it's the it's the working class. It's the down and out sort of ones. It's it's those types of folks. You know what I mean? As opposed to the West End, which is more upper class. Yes, where they speak like this, mm. and they're very different, and they look down on the poor. So there's this dividing line between the East and the West. And William had walked that long eight mile road, and he got home, and and it was there that he basically said, "These are my people." These are, these are the people that we want to reach. And it was there, not in name, but that was the night that the Salvation Army was birthed. And uh, we, we call it in Melbourne or in Australia, where I'm from, uh, we call it the Salvos, which is really interesting. I remember uh, being in the States once. I was like, oh, that's the Salvos. Like, what? Oh, the Salvation Army. We call it the Salvos. Even it's labeled on the actual shop uh, if, if you go to a like a thrift secondhand shop they have. It's called the Salvos. Go to take take those clothes to the Salvos. We, we put an O on the end of everything. Like this afternoon is the Savo. Uh, there's Jono, there's Davo, which is John and David become Jono, Davo. Uh, a service station, which we put P 
petrol in or gas in your car is a servo. So it's not uncommon for an Australian to go, I'm just going down with Jono and Davo the Savo to the servo, and then we're going to chuck those clothes in the boot and take them to the salvos. <laughs> and if you didn't understand that, that's perfectly fine. Uh, <laughs> it's all good, but that's how we talk with salvos. And so that was really where it all began back in those days. And uh, you know what's interesting is around that circus tent where they were having all these meetings, there was within five minutes of that walk, uh, there were over a million people who hadn't heard the gospel. And they, they were the type of people that needed it. Uh, the people that were down and out who, you know, if they, they don't have their Sunday best, if they go to church, everyone's going to look at them. They need Jesus Christ. And William saw that great need. And there was a huge harvest. And he was so excited that the harvest was plentiful. So I love this scripture in Matthew 9. And we read from 37 to 38 says, Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So that's a prayer of mine that more laborers will come. And I'm seeing that here where I am, that more laborers are coming even where I am. And that was something that William Booth got excited. There's there's a double side to this because on one hand, you've got this compassion and you feel a sadness because you see the poor and the needy and you think, boy, I need to help these people. And we empathize with that and it can get us down. But, you know, there is a greater joy that comes from the harvest. I think a farmer would see a harvest and, you know, they could look at it from two perspectives. One and say, oh, there's so much to do. Oh, and just be overwhelmed. Or they could say, this is great. Look how much we've got to do. This is exciting how much opportunity there is, how much we can bring in. So I like to look at it like that, where I go sharing the gospel. It's a messed up generation of young people that are just confused about so many things. Um, They need Jesus Christ. And yeah, it's sad in, in many ways, but it's so exciting. The opportunity, the harvest is plentiful and that's what William Booth had and I think that's something that we need to have is that excitement that joy of the Lord being our strength that we can go out into the harvest and go I want to see people come to Christ and pray that more will come as well and join us so many people were coming to Christ after the meeting the tent meetings that he had in those days in fact well it could be an excuse to get Leonard Ravenhill's voice in but Leonard Ravenhill was talking about William Booth in reflection to those days and the revivals that would break out at that time. They, they saw tent revivals where many people came to Christ. And, and here's the words of Leonard Ravenhill that I'll, I'll quote as he talked about William Booth. He said, General Booth could preach like nobody's business. He would get people trembling. You know, people would ruin hymn books in conviction, shredding them because they were so disturbed. The back row would have torn books as men sat under the conviction with sweat dripping off their noses and chins. Can we get back to that sort of preaching? The torn hymn book pages that were lined along the pews because the conviction was so much. We don't see that. This conviction that, yes, there may not be hymn books, but may, maybe today's equivalent, maybe people dropping their phones and we're like, what's that? Well, that's the sound of conviction right there. Can we get people 
so centered on Jesus because they're seeing something that it's it's not like what we've seen before. It's it's people that are unafraid to speak about hell, repentance, and judgment. And we we so are careful about not offending the lost. We we so and we do have to be careful. But let's not water down the gospel. And this was not a watered down gospel by any means from William Booth. And, you know, sometimes I know what it's like. I don't want to upset someone, but I, I want them to have conviction. And sometimes we've got to allow that to happen for the, the gravity of the law to be so heavy on them that then the grace makes sense. And and that's the sort of preaching that you see from William Booth. And he would do an altar call where uh, sometimes people didn't come straight away and he would shout out, pray. And there was a man under the stage, Commissioner Lolly, which uh, is, is another one, none of those names like Edward Rabbits, but Commissioner Lolly. And, um, and he would pray during the whole message that uh, people would come to Christ. And it's important that we, it doesn't matter if it's under the stage or not, but while we're preaching, it's got to be bathed in prayer. And we have to pray uh, before during and after when we go out for souls and share the gospel. I'll always ask people to, yes, come and join us when we share the gospel, but I always tell people to please pray and pray afterwards, pray during, pray continually as the Bible says, because prayer makes up so much of our evangelism. I think it's almost 80% of it is prayer. Can you believe that? So, and if we're not going into uh, an area without prayer, it's a little dangerous to go into enemy territory and not be filled with prayer. And so he'd told Catherine he'd found his destiny because there's a lifetime of work here. And the people were um, actually awake to the gospel. They were listening as opposed to being in church where they may be used to it, but he found that people were sitting up and listening. They were tearing their hymn books. We want to get back to hymn book torn gospel preaching. That's what I'd love to see. Uh, so he was preaching to the slums. And at the same time, Catherine was preaching to the rich, to the West End. And uh, we need both. We need to see actually both come to Christ because both rich and poor, they're equally lost. They need Jesus and uh, this was the harvest for William to, to go and reach the poor. They were his people. And uh, so they trusted that God had a future with this. So many drunks, they would come to the Lord. They would be converted. Sometimes if the crowd was small, he would preach outside a pub and people would literally come outside, say, what's all this commotion? And he invited them, come to the tent, come to the tent. And the pub owners would be, uh, well, they'd be losing customers. So they would actually pay people to uh, slash the tent. Uh, and the amount of times it got fixed and then slashed and fixed, and, you know, it would go on and on. And they would throw rotten fruit at uh, William. But that, that didn't bother him. He just continued, no, where was I? And he'd continue preaching. That's the best they can do. And um, he met an Irish boxer, an Irish boxer, Peter Monk. I don't know if he sounded like that, but I like to give him that kind of voice. He's a boxer, and I think he might have sounded like that. Uh, one of his early converts, and he would accompany William, not just to uh, do the work that he was doing in the evangelism, uh, but to be his bodyguard. What a what a bonus. And he would walk uh, eight miles a day to the east end of London with him to 
help him on the journey. And uh, they ended up needing a dance hall to host all the meetings because they outgrew the tent. So it's a good problem to have as they grew. Uh, then they moved closer to where it was all happening. You know, it makes sense to do the trip, commute two and a half hours in and two and a half. That's a long time. It's a good time to be praying, but, you know, he needed to be closer. And they moved to Hackney and uh, they sent their son Bramwell to school. But he was uh, sometimes beaten up because he was, you know, William's reputation was starting to really become popular in the area because of his preaching and they called him a holy roller and you know he suffered because of this because of the booth name and william told his son bramwell it's an honor to suffer for the gospel which it it is it's not easy but it is and we don't want to sugarcoat that when we're telling our kids we we want to bring them up in the ways of the lord and we want to protect them absolutely but we also have to be real and be honest and scriptural about the fact that the the Christian life comes with suffering. It's just, it's part of it. In fact, it's actually good for us to go through. Uh, we even just have to desire Christ without even doing the ministry as such. Even the desire promises that we will be persecuted, which we don't want to hold that back from our kids. And William carried the scars, the marks of suffering from the gospel, and everything that he did with his family was all uh, centered around the gospel. So he was bringing his children up, and they were. And, and I love that he got him. Uh, he got all his children to to work in the ministry, which is a great thing because when you do that, you're you're giving them something to give them a sense of value that they're contributing towards. And I love to do that when I bring my family out. Uh, to share the gospel. They may not be yet comfortable to open air preach or to share the gospel, but they can certainly say, uh, here's a gospel tract, or did you get one of these, or whatever they might want to just hand about. And people often take them from kids because they go, who's going to reject a kid, right? Well, they do, but they'll they'll more than likely go, I'll take one, and they're going to feel good. And, and it's a great way to train them up. So, People wanted to go to a church when they come to Christ, but they didn't feel welcome. Again, it's like, you know, we don't have our best clothes. We don't have a lot of money, all this sort of stuff. And William was concerned, well, who's going to disciple these people? And then wasn't too long, William hired a warehouse. Uh, so they kept moving into bigger premises, much bigger, but freezing in the winter, hot in the summer. It sounds like my church, which is like an oven in summer. It's like a a refrigerator in the winter. It's, uh, yeah, sometimes it's so cold in church. I oh, see your breath. Um, it's it get really cold. But uh, so, so many people would come back to these tent revival meetings and they would end up wanting to hear more and uh, they weren't accepted at these churches, but, but they were with William and they needed food, they needed clothing, but most of all, they needed discipling and William was that man. And he, by this stage, he now had over 60 followers, people who were helping him. What can we do to help out? We're, you know, We want to serve, we want to help. And there was a, a young a medical student, Thomas Bernardo, who said he's setting up an uh, orphanage for poor orphan children. And William said to him, you look after the children and I'll look after the adults. Then together, we will convert the world. <laughs> It's it's when when you do a William Booth impression, it's like <coughs> really, 
plays on the... <clears throat> and you've got to be careful because everyone thinks they've got COVID and they social distance from you. It's, it's a little bit crazy, right? But um, so the press started to get hold of what was going on. And they started to write about William Booth. He, his fame uh, started to spread. And it wasn't good fame or publicity, but it was publicity. And it had the address of where all these meetings were being held. And what a good thing. People were able to turn up to these meetings. So they're trying to put a, a dampener on what he's doing. But it's like, well, actually, this is going to increase. This is good. This is actually good. All things work together for good, for those that love God who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. And it, it reminds me of, of, of Ray Comfort with the, um, with the Banana Man story. You, you've heard the Banana Man story where he's talking about the banana was created by God. It's got a, a natural curve towards the mouth. It's got its own packaging. And, and so he did this little sketch kind of to be funny. And, and that's all good. But years later, atheists see this and... Boy, does Ray become this target for complete mockery and it gets viral and all the atheists are seeing this and suddenly Ray's thinking, oh no, this is the the worst. All that good work is now just gone to waste because you, you can imagine, I feel for Ray that that had to happen. But as a result of that, actually, no, even though it's not good publicity, God's using that and he's been able to get Ray into uh, atheist conventions where they've been able to do debate and Ray's share the gospel. It's opened up so many doors. It's increased his ministry perhaps tenfold because of that. And God has used it. It's so classic. The enemy thinks, I've got you. But it's like, God's like, actually, just wait. This is going to be so much better. And you see that in the scriptures. You know, persecution comes to the church. There's a spread of uh, people that flee. And so that's horrible. But actually, no, the gospel is spreading. That's happened so many times. I think even Richard Dawkins was mocking Ray Comfort by holding up one of his $1 million bills that had the gospel on and say, can you believe this? This uh, crazy nutcase. And here it is. Um, you know, ask yourself the million dollar question. Uh, will you go to heaven when you die? Uh, have you ever told a lie? Uh, it, have you ever stolen anything? And he's going through the Ten Commandments, shares the whole gospel. Yes, he means it to mock, right? No doubt about it. But he's just been used that millions of his followers are hearing the gospel. It's just like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for preaching the gospel so well. Um, I love that. I love it when something that the enemy tries to use for evil, God converts it and uses it for good. And that was what was happening with William Booth. And they were finally making a mark and they were reaching the lost. And William said to Catherine, as, as I mentioned, these are my people, Catherine, my people. And he really knew his harvest. And people were glued to his sermons as he delivered his messages. He ended up uh, renting out various halls, getting to hear the gospel and getting other gospel speakers that were part of the team. And they had 13 venues soon. And some of them were street corners, but the gospel was going out and there was a newsletter going out to all the people that were following. Uh, they had soup kitchens, they had Bible studies. He would see people on the streets that had no hope and he was burdened. I must 
I must do something about it. And it was Christmas Day one one year. And he decided, you know, he, he just, he was in a warm home having Christmas pudding. And he decided, that's it. From now on, we'll give free Christmas puddings to the poor. I, I wonder how William Booth might sound if he was around today. Because it's such a voice that, you know, it would have been okay in those days. But how would a voice like that look today? And I just wanted to show you a little clip of how that might look. I'm at Hungry Jack's, which in uh, America is Burger King. It's the same thing. And um, I'm going to order in the William Booth voice. And we're getting, for the kids, three frozen Cokes and one regular chips. Hi, welcome to Jack's. Can I take your order? May I please get three frozen Cokes and one regular chips, please? Yep, anything else? That's all. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so embarrassing. So, lots of fun to imitate uh, William Booth, but uh, he, he was a great man and he'd been approached by, uh, at this stage, things are going so well, a, a wealthy businessman uh, came to make an offer and say that you could have full use of our building uh, but it was one of those tests because he would have had to do things on his terms and not so much for the Lord. And he just done a newsletter where it, this was in 1869 saying, what are you going to do in 1869? That's the big question. And uh, this was the East London Christian Mission. That's what they were known as at that stage. And he, he wanted to be a doer of the word, not not just a hearer only. And uh, whatever God was going to show him, he would do. And so he had to knock back this generous offer. And that's so often uh, something that's bait that we can fall for that. Not that it was to deceive him, but it just wasn't what the Lord was wanting him to do. When he said, what are you going to do? It had to be whatever the Lord was showing. And even though that was attractive, it wasn't what god was ultimately leading to and it's just a reminder sometimes we can have things that look like that like a like an ishmael and we get a little impatient we think well maybe this is good whereas sometimes god has an isaac waiting and i encourage you to wait there are sometimes i've wanted to do things because it's there it's here i need it now and yet i know i'm convicted that there's something else that i need to wait out for don't be like the Gadites and the Reubenites that said, shall we just settle here and have this land, this side of the Jordan? And uh, whereas they had the promised land to wait for. Don't settle when you know God's got something greater. It may not look greater in terms of money or to the world's eyes, but it's greater in the kingdom of God and it's worth it. And um, it was difficult because a lot of the, well, even though a lot of people were coming to Christ, there was a lot of persecution and a lot of inward persecution, even from the church, uh, that wasn't all on board with what William Booth was doing. And he would get rotten fruit thrown at him. Uh, and one of the verses, because th this was just, you know, this continual barrage of fruit. Now, I understand. I'm a comedian. We're supposed to be getting rotten tomatoes thrown at us, right? Doesn't really happen. I, I've never had that. Um, I, I did get a, um, a gift thrown at me one time from a gift table. Uh, because I was 
doing a comedy show and I was stirring up someone in the crowd because they were starting to walk out. It had nothing to do with walking out on my show, but I just said a funny line to this guy. And he 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 must have um, had a bit of an anger problem. <laughs> he retaliated. He went up to the gift table. He got a, a gift and he just chucked it at me. And I had to sort of duck, but I, I ended up catching it. And I go, oh, I might have that. Thanks for that. <laughs> and turned it into a bit of a joke. But And it was for a darts club. And I just said, oh, I'm thankful you didn't throw a dart at me. But uh, But anyway, this was something that, would happen. They would just be so persecuted, so often fruit and uh, mud and stones were all thrown at them. This was just what they would do. They actually wear uh, two pairs of uh, clothing. They'd have their outward clothing and then they'd undo that and then they'd have their second layer because they knew that drunk men would threaten to punch uh, any man who spoke the name of Jesus. They would get cabbage, carrots, uh, flour, mud and stones. What a recipe, hey? Uh, All on their clothing and uh, William used his whole family. So they're all going out into this. And one of the scriptures they really held on to was Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Doesn't seem blessed at the time, does it, to have all that going on? But you are blessed if you get that thrown at you, if you're getting insults. Uh, we've we've definitely had our fair share of insults and funny looks, and uh, it, it's it's really I haven't encountered this kind of level where I'm having cabbage and carrots and flour thrown at me. I'd probably make a soup, maybe I don't know. Um, during the course of this, he met Scottish Reverend uh, Mr. Lancelot Railton, uh, and he was there to speak about his brother George Railton, who was a tall, stocky man from Scotland probably spoke like this and he wanted to preach with William and lots of, I don't know what he sounded like, but that's the voice I'm giving George Railton. And he had this knack for organization. And this was complimentary because this they were looking for someone who could do admin, organization, secretarial type work. And he knew how to do that. And he would write hundreds of letters to the followers and William could do what he needed to do. And this was during the Civil War. Well, the eight years later after the Civil War in the US. So it was still fairly fresh in their minds. And George Railton, George Railton used the military language in the newsletters to write about this new artillery that they had in, in a spiritual sense, of course. And William was like, I like this. I like this military talk. And there was another... Uh, gentleman called Elijah Cadman, who was a, it was a Cockney. So a Cockney means, you know, you got that sort of British accent, right? And he was a chimney sweep. You can imagine him in, uh, what's Mary Poppins, you know, one of those types of chimney sweeps, right? Short, stocky, uneducated man, but he wanted to join William to preach, right? So you got, so you got uh, the, the, the stocky, Kind of Scott, right? George Realton. Then you've got this sort of Cockney uh, Elijah. And, you know, you've, you've also got the uh, the boxer, the Irish boxer. And you've got William Booth. You've got all these great voices and they're forming this. And Elijah liked all the military talk as well. And he called it the, uh, the, the Hallelujah Army. And he said, come and hear the general of the Hallelujah Army. And, and he, he called William Booth. He said, come and hear the general, General Booth. And... He actually liked the I like that idea. Yes, yes. So they thought maybe we call this the volunteer army. And then it was like, mm, 
someone decided, no, it's going to be the Salvation Army. And so from 1878, that's where it became that, the Salvos, as I like to say, Salvation Army. And uh, military terms were adopted. The, the followers were soldiers and they had captains and uh, cadets. And the newsletter was called the War Cry. And they, they even got uniforms, just like the army. And the blood and fire was the emblem. Uh, all the officers uh, at this stage, they had about 120 officers that were uh, like your, your pastors, I guess you could say, were all homegrown. They'd come to Christ within the mission. It wasn't from other churches that, well, we'll go and work for you. This was new converts that came to Christ that were used and, and they would use all their talents for the Lord. If, if someone knew how to do, well, I guess if it was today, uh, I would use comedy and voices for the Lord. Whatever we could do, sometimes Bramwell, the son of William Booth, uh, would go out and he'd have six men carrying him in a coffin. <laughs> and then he would get out of the coffin and people would think, oh, What's going on here? And then he'd say, Oh, death, where is thy sting? That, that's the voice I'm giving to Bramwell Booth. We might have heard what he sounded like. I haven't checked that out yet, but because uh, he was uh, later after William Booth. But all methods were used. Uh, brass bands. And this is where the Salvation Army got that. At, at first, William didn't like it, but when he saw actually, this is attracting crowds. This is working. And not that we do it to attract numbers and then just to sort of bait and switch and then we get them in. This was something that was being used to draw a crowd, but it was definitely for the salvation of souls. And uh, they would do Bible training for young cadets. And uh, they were having even the poor recommending the other poor. Oh, you've got to go to the Salvation Army. And so by now... This following's happening. Meanwhile, the persecution's going on. Fruit, vegetables, stone, uh, stones, mud, even <laughs> get this dead cats were thrown and rats. Can you, can you imagine getting a dead cat thrown at you? <laughs> like, you know, I don't know whether you'd just be like, I was awful. We were out evangelizing. Someone threw a dead cat at me. I think I would just laugh. I think that would be just what, a dead. Who throws a dead cat at someone? <laughs> I'm sure I'd see the humor in it. Um, but it, it, yes, they did, but it was quite, uh, quite the, the heavy persecution. There were riots. There was actually uh, a group they called the Skeleton Army with the, the skull and crossbones, and they would go out trying to undo all the work uh, that was going on and very much against them. And uh, they would have these riots. Actually, they kicked, uh, uh, they knocked a woman to the ground and um, then she got kicked in the stomach. Internal bleeding caused her to die. So some horrible persecution came against them. And, and William just, he wasn't there to retaliate and fight against this, this skeleton army. He wanted them to come to Christ. He wanted peace. And in this time was also, so there was persecution, but there was also growth. And other countries, the US, uh, they, they started in New York. George Rielton went over to New York and and started over there with the Salvation Army, and they helped. Uh, he was able to help uh, women that were caught in prostitution, uh, even legally getting the age of consent raised, so that this became uh, law, which was able to help uh, the well-being of women that were caught in that vicious cycle. And Bramwell, his son, said, "If if we see a need, we meet it." And uh, yes, it was a social 
awareness, but it wasn't just social. It was ultimately for the gospel. Uh, It's important to note because a lot of people these days, even under the banner of churches, can be more about the social aspect of that. And look, the world does that. We want to be not just known for that, but known that we can help the poor. Yes, but give them Christ. There was, um, I remember being in the city where I live in Melbourne uh, with the family probably six, seven years ago. I've lost track of time. And my daughter at the time, she might have been nine, eight or nine, I think. And we saw a homeless lady begging on the streets. And I, I, I think I gave her a some money, but I also uh, shared with her the gospel. I gave her the gospel and really emphasized that, you know, I, I wanted to make sure she had somewhere to stay. I think there was the Salvos, Salvation Army, that was able to get her into that. So we're able to help that. But I said, I want you to have a spiritual home because my citizenship is in heaven, you know, as it talks about in Philippians. But I said, you know, it's so important that we all repent and we put our trust in Christ. And I shared the gospel with her. Uh, And I was so glad that my kids were able to see that. Uh, And then I sort of walked off and we went to dinner along there, um, this lovely restaurant, which was in the city. We were staying in there for a few days with the family. And my daughter got really teary. And she said, I can't believe that, that that lady doesn't have a home. And it was just so beautiful. Oh, just, you know, seeing that compassion in, in my daughter, seeing that she was so caring towards this woman and I was like oh sweetie I'm so glad you know she's got that evangelism heart that wants to see and I said you know it is so good that you have that compassion don't lose that and yes yeah we want to see her get a home but we really want to see her have that spiritual home as well we do need to help the poor bible says in proverbs 19 17 whoever is kind to the poor lends to the lord and he will reward them for what they have done, pouring in the oil and wine like the the Good Samaritan. And this is something that I think, you know, we do want to help them absolutely. And there's many times where I've seen people, I've helped them. I've been able to give them vouchers, been able to pray with them, whatever physical help. But the spiritual help is so important. And at that stage, the Salvation Army had the, uh, the slogan, soup. Soap and salvation. I like that. You just wonder whether some of them these days have soup and soap. And that's great. But come on. It's got to be salvation there. So it's going well, the Salvation Army at this stage. But Catherine sadly developed breast cancer at that time. And she was needing to have a rest from her work. But she still at that time wrote many letters from her bedside. And not long after she went to be with the Lord and they called it a promotion to glory. It wasn't a sad occasion. It was, it was being promoted and it's a great way of looking at how we end this life. Well, and they were able to raise millions of pounds for the poor. A book was written by William Booth called in darkest England. And um, they had a matchmaking factory to help raise funds for uh, raising a million pounds. When I say matchmaking, it's not like setting people up on um, matchmaking, like, but literally match making matches that, that have fire, which is 
pretty good to have that for William Booth because he had he had that fire in his belly even when he was seventy two and his his wife had passed away and he'd, he'd done so well he could you could sort of sit back and retire but he then ventured out on a world tour which is you know, no big thing um, no small thing I should say at that time because you're doing all the travel by ships and he he went out telling everyone um, about the Salvation Army but sharing the gospel and. Uh, Another story I want to share, this was kind of at the stage where now it's worldwide. I love this little story. It was around that time as well where there was a poor city where they spin and weave cotton into cloth and the whole town was on poverty at that level. And Kate and Mary Jackson were working for the Salvation Army for a couple of years and and nothing happened. Well, it doesn't feel like that sometimes you do all this labor and we're not seeing any results. And this is how they're feeling. Kind of a uh, bit of despair. Those girls worked diligently and went to bed exhausted at night. So they wrote to William Booth. And, you know, in those days, they you couldn't just text. You couldn't just email. You'd write a telegram. And they said, would you kindly move us to another station? We're so tired and disheartened. We've tried everything that we've been taught to do. Please move us to another location. Booth sent a telegram back with two words. Try tears. Very famous words. What a, what a famous quote there from William Booth. Try tears. They did, and they saw real revival, and those girls went to travailing prayer. Not just prayer, but travailing prayer that had anguish in it. And the road to revival is often paved with tears and brokenness, and that's what these girls had. So this is what Nehemiah had. When you read Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah says in verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Weeping is something that is part of seeing that. And I like, again, I'm going to quote Ray Comfort. He sometimes says, you know, there might not be tears in my eyes, but there's tears in my voice that I want you to hear. And I think that's what, if, if you're going, I can't cry. I can't get tears out. You know, as long as there's tears inside that, you know, that the natural tears are just a, an outflow of what's really going on. And Jeremiah 9.1, he says, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. This is great if we have that in evangelism. I, I mentioned earlier to have that joy because of the harvest. But yes, we do have to have tears of compassion. And whether those are real tears that pour out of our eyes or their tears in our heart towards that, just that, oh Lord, I want to see that that travailing prayer, not just prayer as it says. Um, I like this quote as well, that King Edward had met William Booth. And this is later on in his life. This is toward the very end of his life. And it was interesting because a lot of publicity that William had had in the early days was very bad publicity and suddenly he's meeting with kings and the king uh, Edward VII asked him for an autograph what a, what an honor and he wrote 
an autograph and he wrote this great quote here. Some men's passion is for gold. Some men's passion is for art. Some men's passion is for fame. My passion is for souls. I'm glad these are short quotes because, <coughs> boy, a whole speech like William Booth, I, I would just cough all the way through it. It really does that to my throat. And um, so after a long, long tour, a world tour, uh, William Booth developed cataracts in his eyes. Uh, they they did operate on and he became blind in one eye. He continued on with his tour, but it wasn't too long before he realized that uh, this this is going to be the last days of William Booth, but he fought till the end and he fought with passion. And I love his last quote. And I'm going to finish with this one because it's, well, I've got to make sure I've got the, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to leave it with you as a quote, but uh, thank you so much for being a part of the Thunder Down Under Evangelism Truths from Heroes of the Faith series. I hope you've enjoyed it. This has been one of my favorites. God bless you. And hopefully we can get to see some more of these. And uh, I'll hope you enjoy this last quote of William Booth that I'll leave with you. Thank you so much. While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there's a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.